Wait. I was given a Pokemon on their way out. I have no idea what to do with that. On my shoulder. Okay, tell me all, you know, how that goes. All right. We are beginning the Gospel of Mark today. And so I'm very excited. I choose to preach through a gospel every five years. And Mark is the last one. So I've preached through uh, Luke, John twice, and Matthew, and now we've finally gotten to Mark. So very excited for that. If you want to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1, should be there in your sermon outline as well. You can look it up on your device. Encourage people to bring Bibles so you learn your way around it where everything is. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. So let us turn there and listen carefully and read the first 13 verses of Mark chapter 1. This is God's Word. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and as always, we need it. We know what the gospel is, but we rarely do what the gospel demands. And we know who Jesus is, but we're not often amazed by what he does. Lord, forgive us and prepare us to be your disciples. Teach us to be faithful to Christ and obedient to your word. We need to know what it means to follow Christ. We need to know how to be so immensely grateful for the work of Christ. We need to know that the righteous one died for the unrighteous ones, like us. Thank you that today we begin a year of learning from John Mark the protege of the Apostle Peter and a follower of Jesus, as he brings us the earliest eyewitness account of the life of Christ. Help us to hear it, understand it, believe it and obey it. And so we pray, speak through the gospel of Mark this morning. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. 
Amen. Man, it's cold in here. I'm freezing. So I have a weird sense of humor. It's part of the job description. So the Gospel of Mark. Mark is the first written account that we have of the life of Jesus. So why did Mark write the life of Jesus down? For that matter, why did Matthew, Luke, and John write the life of Jesus down? For about 30 years or so after the life and death of Jesus, there were no written accounts. The gospel of Jesus Christ was spread orally. It was shared verbally. And one of the reasons why there weren't any written accounts was that it was difficult for any distorted accounts of who Jesus really was to take hold. And it was hard because of the presence of eyewitnesses. So, for example, in 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Corinth about 20 years after the death of Jesus. He's writing to the church, and he's talking about what the resurrection means and how it happened. And then he lists the people who actually saw the risen Christ. And at one point he says, there's 500 people to whom Jesus appeared all at once. He says, most of them are still alive. If you want to ask them, go ahead. Go ahead and talk to them. They're still around. In other words, within the first few decades after the life of Jesus, it was very difficult for someone just to make things up about Jesus because there were so many people who were actually there, who knew him. For example, you couldn't say, oh yeah, Jesus, he used to fly through the air between preaching engagements. He was divine so he could fly. Because there's too many people around who could say, no, I was there. That didn't happen. But now, one generation after the resurrection of Christ, the apostles are starting to die off. The eyewitnesses are starting to die off. Now, the danger has arisen. The people can decide who they want Jesus to be. They could make up a Jesus of their own. They could lose touch with the real Jesus. And so therefore, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the gospel writers, began to pull together the eyewitness accounts of the apostles, and they turned them into these gospels of Jesus, even though Mark is the only one who actually calls it a gospel. So, for example, Luke, at the beginning of uh, his book, says to Theophilus, who is a person of means, he had written his gospel for, Luke 1, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John did was they took eyewitness accounts and wove them together into one story so that we could have the real Jesus. Not a Jesus we make up, not a Jesus of our own imagination, but the real Jesus as he really was, what he really said, what he really did. And I think we desperately need that today. And here's why. When I started pastoral ministry in the early 90s, there wasn't much interest in Jesus. Jesus was old hat. Jesus was been there, done that. There wasn't a great deal of interest in Jesus, but man, has that changed. There's been an explosion in the last decade or so of spirituality. 
an interest in spiritual things. And everybody's interested in Jesus, but on their own terms. And yet here's the rub. A Jesus you shape, a Jesus you make up, a Jesus that fits your desires, a Jesus of your own imagination, ironically, can't really change you, can't really transform you, because the Jesus you make up can't challenge you, can't contradict you. Why? Because he's just like you. You made him up. So the irony is that Jesus you create can't really change, renew, or transform you. If you want a Jesus who can really help you, if you want a Jesus who can really change you, if you want a Jesus who can really affect you spiritually, then you have to get the real Jesus. And that's what you have here in the Gospel of Mark. In fact, in some ways, Mark out of the four Gospels might be the best place to get the real Jesus because all the other Gospels are longer. Mark is the shortest. The other Gospels are longer because they talk more about Jesus. So, for example, look how Mark starts versus how the other Gospels start. Matthew starts with the genealogy. Who's Jesus? What are his roots? Who's his family? Luke starts um, with Zechariah and Elizabeth and Mary and Joseph. It's all very interesting, and we love it at Christmas. And John starts at the creation of the world. Big thinker, John's a big-picture guy. However, Mark just starts right in on Jesus. Boom. We begin with an announcement of the prophets. Right off the bat, verses 1 through 8, an announcement of the prophets. In fact, not only do you get, uh, don't you get much teaching about Jesus and commentary about Jesus, you don't even have much teaching by Jesus in the book of Mark. Mark just wants to give you Jesus, who he is, what he's done. And that's why, because we're in the midst of a culture that desperately needs the real Jesus, because that's why this, what, um, what this book is written to give us, a Jesus who can actually change our lives, we're going to be in the Gospel of Mark for the next year. We'll take a break at Advent and Christmas, but other than that, we're going to live in the Gospel of Mark for the next 12 months. I said, it's the shortest one. Matthew and Luke both went longer. So, Mark is a man who minces few words. Right away he tells us, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Who is Jesus? He's the Christ, which means anointed one. Jesus, the real Jesus, is the anointed king. And Mark, in these first eight verses, gets right down to who this king is. In this first chapter, we're told three things. Who the king is, where the king is going, and how do you get to meet the king? That's the gospel right there. So what does he say? Well, first of all, Mark tells us who this king is, verses 2 and 3. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now for the Jews, this is a historical bombshell. Mark is quoting the prophet Isaiah. He's actually quoting Malachi and Isaiah. He's quoting from Isaiah 40, and he's basically saying someday the Lord himself will come to Jerusalem and show the nations his glory, and a messenger will call out and prepare the way before him. That's the prophecy. And Mark identifies the messenger with John the Baptist, 
And that means Mark identifies the Lord who is coming, the Lord of Isaiah 40, with Jesus. And when Mark starts off his gospel with this prophecy of Isaiah, he's rooting the gospel of Jesus Christ into the ancient hope of Israel for a king to come someday who will take down every mountain and raise up every canyon and heal all the world of all its sin and brokenness. That's what we read in our responsive reading this morning. And Mark is saying, that king has come. And then we get to the next prophet, and his name is John. John the Baptist. Even though he appears in the New Testament, he's really the last Old Testament prophet. He looks like an Old Testament prophet. He acts like an Old Testament prophet. Apparently, he eats like an Old Testament prophet. He sounds like an Old Testament prophet. He preaches in the wilderness, and the people have to go out and get baptized in the wilderness, starting at verse 4. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So what's important about John the Baptist being out in the wilderness? It's actually very important. Because John the Baptist in the wilderness baptize people, hence the name. Well, that doesn't sound like such a big deal, but it is. It's actually an enormous big deal. You see, before John the Baptist, there was always what you might call washings and cleansings and immersions. The Jews understood that they needed to wash their hands and wash their face before going in to worship God. It was a way of saying, I need to be cleansed of sin. I have some uncleanness in my life, and so it was a ritual for purification of sins. Not only that, but Gentiles who wanted to go in the temple to worship God, they not only had to wash their hands, they had to pour water all over themselves. They had to immerse themselves. There had to be a complete cleansing because they were Gentiles. They were considered really unclean. They didn't just wash their hands. They washed everything because they were Gentiles and considered ritually unclean. Now, most of you are Gentiles. Not all of you, but most of you. <coughs> and the idea that you washed to make yourself pure from sin and go in before God, that's been done for centuries. But get this, and I didn't realize this until I, until I started preparing for this sermon. You always did it yourself. Always. The Gentiles did self-immersion. The Jews did self-cleansing. And for the first time in history, John the Baptist says, nope, doesn't count anymore. I have to baptize you. All of you, not just Gentiles, Jews too, everybody. It doesn't matter where you came from. It doesn't matter if you're a Pharisee or a prostitute. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. You have to receive your fitness for this king from the hand of another. 
I'm going to have to baptize you. Later, Jesus is going to baptize you. I'll do it with water. He'll do it with the Holy Spirit. But the point of the matter is you can't save yourself. Do you know what this means? Let me make it personal. There's always at Potomac Hills a few people who are searching. And here's why you're searching. Your well is run dry. Let me give you an example. Let's just say you went and you got into all the right schools and you're doing really well and you're on your way and financially you're making pretty good money. And you think, man, this is going to be great. And then you have a major financial reversal and your future is very iffy and you could be in real financial trouble. Guess what? You thought the money was just a nice thing, but now you've come to see that it was the main thing. And you're experiencing a lot of emotions and you can't relate to people. You're having trouble making commitments to anybody else. You're having trouble liking yourself, having some dark thoughts about yourself. And you're starting to realize, perhaps, that you didn't want all this after all. You say, you know, I wasn't even that religious, but you were. Because that was your savior. It was the knowledge that you were savvy, you were smart, you were making a lot of money, you were doing very well, and now it's gone. And you suddenly realize you're experiencing major identity loss. It was your well, your living water, your bread of life, and now it's gone. And now you realize I'm empty and I need something. So you start to go to church. You start coming here. You start to read your Bible. You say, this is what I need. I need God. And then what do you do? And this happens over and over again. The first thing you do is you say, you know, I'm going to be really good. I'm not going to lie anymore, and I'm not going to do all those nasty things I was doing in order to get ahead, and I'm going to clean up my life. And you've traded money for religion. You've gotten religion instead of not going to church. And John the Baptist says no. You're still trying to save yourself. You're still trying to baptize yourself. You're still immerse, immerse, immersing yourself. You're still trying to save yourself. You haven't really changed your foundation. John says, I'm going to have to baptize you. Later, Jesus will, Jesus will baptize you. I'll do it with water. He'll do it with the Holy Spirit. But the point of the whole matter is you can't save yourself. That's the announcement of the prophets. That's why it's a big deal when he says, you've got to come and be baptized out here in the wilderness, and I have to do it. You can't do it for yourself because you can't save yourself. But then next, the scene shifts. And Mark shifts a lot. It's like Jesus did this, and then immediately he did that, and then immediately he did this, and then he uses the word immediately more than all the other gospel writers combined. And so we're told Jesus begins his ministry. He's baptized, verses 9 through 13, the presence of God and Satan. The presence of God and Satan. That's presence as in they show up, not as in they gave you something. So starting at verse 9, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. So the big question is, 
did Jesus really need to be baptized? And the answer is yes and no. No, since there's no cleansing from sin required, but yes, since he's now identifying with us who do need cleansing from sin. Sinclair Ferguson helpfully explains, here already Jesus indicates how he will become our Savior. By standing in the river in whose waters penitent Jews had symbolically washed away their sins and allowing that water polluted by those sins to be poured over his perfect being. That's the picture he's identifying with sinners. He's taken on the guilt and condemnation of our sin. Jesus, by undergoing baptism, is teaching us that he's willing to endure what we deserve, that we might receive true cleansing. The baptism we need, he received because the curse we deserve, he endured. And because of him, you can be made clean. And the presence of God the Father and God the Spirit is giving Jesus this powerful experience of God's love and power. And after this high point, he'll begin his ministry. He's moving out into ministry. He's had this incredible experience of God's love. But before he gets there, we're told what? Verse 12, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Christ has just had the greatest experience of his life, and immediately he's assaulted by Satan. He's tested, he's attacked with fiery trials, he's beset with all sorts of temptations. And yet, because we have the whole Bible, we know he didn't give in to any of those temptations. Matthew and Luke cover them in a lot more detail but there's three things I want you to notice about this passage. The first one takes us away from the passage, but because it's a hot topic these days and it's in this text, I want to quickly address it. So I'm going to sort of step outside of Mark uh, for a moment. And it has to do with the subject of temptation. Hebrews 4.15, talking about Christ, uh, says... For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And because of that passage, many people will tell you that temptation in and of itself is not sin. It's only when you give in to temptation that it becomes sin. And they're right. And they're also very wrong. How can that be? Well, I'm going to summarize a long talk by Dr. Kevin DeYoung, uh, given at the Gospel Reformation Network Conference in June, which took place the day before our General Assembly um, for the PCA. And you can find it on YouTube or Vimeo if you want to hear the whole thing. I've put the link in your outline. It's really good. So this comes from him. And if there's any errors, they're mine, probably because I'm summarizing an hour lecture in two minutes. But what's important to understand that when it comes to temptation, we have to make distinctions between external temptation and internal temptations. External temptations, often called testing or trials in the scriptures, come from outside of us. Something or uh, someone else wants us to do some bad thing. And they're sinful when we give in to them. These are the kind of temptations Jesus experienced when, verse 13, he's being tempted by Satan. However, some temptations are internal. They come from within. 
They come when I want to do that bad thing. James 1, 14 and 15 says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And these internal temptations, due to our own sinful nature caused by original sin and our total depravity, enticed by our own desires, are always sinful. Let me give you an example. So, if Dave Dorse wants me to punch Frank Wong in the face, I'm going to say, no, I like Frank. I'm not going to punch him. Why would you say that? And yes, that would be sin on Dave's part, but not mine. But just a half hour later, and I'm sitting there and I started to think, you know, it'd be kind of fun to punch Frank in the face. I just might do that. Now, I still wouldn't do that, but just having those thoughts, those kind of internal temptations, that's actually sin. And it needs to be confessed. Temptation is sometimes distinguished from sin and sometimes identified as sin. Internal temptations are always sinful. External temptations may or may not be sinful. Do you see the difference there? This is a big topic and related to a number of issues in our world today. And I just wanted to take time out and sort of explain that. I told a couple people like a month ago, I was going to explain it, and I never did. So now you got it. Okay, back to our text, back to Mark. We'll step back in here in Mark's brief explanation of Jesus' temptation by Satan. Second thing we see here, it's actually interesting and hopefully encouraging. Maybe not. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all talk about Jesus being tempted in the wilderness right after this experience of being baptized and affirmed by God the Father and God the Spirit. And this is actually what happens is typical. We should expect it. Mark's the only one who says he was with the wild animals. Matthew doesn't mention that. Luke doesn't mention that. You know why? Because Mark's written to Roman Christians who are being persecuted and they're being sent to the lions. This is Mark's way of saying, because you dare put your foot on the wall of the enemy, you're with the wild beast. You're walking in there, and you're being torn up. There's not a single fiery trial that can come upon you that Jesus Christ himself has not had. None of these things are alien to him. He was with the wild beast, too. He was misrepresented like you. He's been betrayed like you. He knows all of it because, you see, as soon as he had this highest experience of God's love and power, he was immediately assaulted. It's to be expected. You'll be tried. You'll be tested. You'll be tempted. It is part and parcel of the Christian life. That's the second thing. That was the encouraging part. The third thing we see is a very intentional connection with the book of Genesis. You think about it. You go back to Genesis, and after the Spirit moves on the face of the water, God speaks things into being, right? Creation is launched. What's the very next thing that happens? Satan, temptation, Garden of Eden. Here at the beginning of the ministry of Jesus Christ, the inauguration of the new creation, Christ comes up out of the water, the Spirit moves upon him, God speaks, and bingo, same thing. Satan, temptation, wilderness. But there's some differences, and they're important to notice. And there's a big difference between the first Adam and the second Adam. 
The first Adam was in the garden. The second Adam, who is Christ, is in the wilderness. The first Adam was with lions, who I guess were at that time were in wonderful harmony with man in the Garden of Eden. Second Adam's out there in the wilderness with the wild beasts. This is Mark's way of saying that the second Adam had an infinitely harder test, an infinitely harder path to walk than the first Adam. And of course, this temptation isn't over in verse 13. It goes throughout Christ's life. He's assaulted by Satan his entire ministry. And it comes to a head in the Garden of Gethsemane, the ultimate anti-garden to the Garden of Eden. And here's why I think of the two tests here. God says to the first Adam, obey me about the tree. God says to the second Adam, obey me about the tree, only this time the tree is a cross. God says to the first Adam, obey me about the tree and you will live. And he didn't. And God says to the second Adam, obey me about the tree and you will die. And he did. And that's why the Apostle Paul writes, Romans 5, For as by the one man's disobedience, the first Adam, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the second Adam, the many will be made righteous. And why the Apostle Peter writes, 1 Peter 3, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Let me tell you what happens when he brings you to God. When you're about to meet the king, Nathan Cole was a Connecticut farmer. And he had a diary. He lived in the 1740s. At least that's when he kept his diary. Historians find it remarkably interesting. They study it all the time because he makes all these interesting references to social and cultural stuff of that day. He became a Christian listening to a sermon by George Whitfield, the great evangelist who was preaching outdoors in Connecticut in 1740. Listen to his account of how he became a Christian. It was in hearing a sermon by Whitfield, and I'm paraphrasing, but he says, My hearing him preach gave me a heart wound, and by God's grace my old foundation was broken up, and I saw that my righteousness could not save me. He's in the wilderness. He saw his foundation broken. He realized that he could not save himself. And at that moment, he met the king. So where do you go to meet the king? You meet the king in the wilderness. The whole theme of this chapter is if you're going to meet this king, you have to go out into the wilderness. I love the word wilderness because it has the word wild in it, and I like that. I like the old English way of saying they went out into the wild. The trouble with the word wilderness is that for you and I living in North America, to us, wilderness means a forest. That doesn't get the biblical meaning of the word at all. Because the forest here in North America is a place teeming with life. It's easy to live in a forest. You can hunt and you can fish and you can grow things. And if you find a clearing where sun gets through the leaves, you know, you can go grow all kinds of stuff. And it's a place exploding with life. But the wilderness, as the Bible defines it, is what we would call a desert. Now, it's not desert like Sahara Desert. You think big sand dunes and all that. Get rid of that. This is like if the wind came and blew all the sand away. 
it's just rock. It's just lots of rock and, and pebbles and gravel where the rock broke, and it's all dead, nothing grows. That's wilderness. The wilderness is a place that cannot sustain life. The wilderness is a place of thorns. Nothing else grows. It's a place of thirst. All the wells are dry. There's no bread out there. You can't grow wheat. You can't grow crops. There's just thorns. There's no water out there. There's thorns. There's thirst. There's terrible loneliness. It can't support people. It can't support life. What's important in the wilderness? And why is it important that people have to go out into the wilderness? Well, interestingly enough, this is actually one of the themes of the Bible. In general, you meet God in the wilderness. In the history of Israel, they meet God in the wilderness. Where did Moses meet God in the burning bush? The wilderness. Where did Jacob wrestle with God face to face? The wilderness. Where did Israel meet God? In Egypt? No, at Mount Sinai in the wilderness. That's where they made the people of God in principle. And of 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, they became the people of God in practice. Why is the wilderness generally the place where you meet God? Because the wilderness is a place where you can't stay alive without the intervention of God. All the wells go dry, so you have to have the water of God out of the rock. All the bread goes moldy, so you have to have the manna of God. Out in the wilderness, Israel learned what we all have to learn. That God's not an add-on. He's not a vitamin supplement. He's not you know, additional part that's just going to help me get there. I'll get there 90% of the way on my own, but he's going to give me the last 10%. No, apart from the saving intervention of God in the wilderness, you have no hope. Ultimately, all wells run dry except the water of God. All bread goes moldy except for the manna of God. Okay, what does that have to do with us? Actually, everything the book of Hebrews, we went through it about four years ago, says we still meet God in the wilderness. You know what that means? It means just as in a literal desert, you come to find all the wells but God's go dry and all the bread but God's goes moldy. In our lives, we generally only meet God when we go through a wilderness experience. So what's a wilderness experience? It's when something you have looked to as your real hope. Or you may believe in God and believe in Christianity and go to church. But the real hope of your life, the real well, the real bread, the real thing that keeps you alive, the real spiritual life, the thing that makes you feel worthwhile, your real Savior, your real Lord, your real bread and drink runs out. Or you find out it's inadequate. And then you realize it's time to meet the king. Not that you decide to get a little bit religious, but something happens in your life that makes you look at the very foundation of your life. And you realize, I'm going to die without God. It's not my career. It's not my family. It's not my looks. It's not my friends. It's not my achievements. It's not the money. It's none of these things. It's not being a great husband, a great wife, or having great kids. None of those things are ever, ever, ever going to actually make me happy. Every well will run dry except for the water of God. Every bread will go moldy except for the manna of God. When you realize that, and you realize without the direct intervention of God in my life, I'm dead. 
when and only when you experience that and you're in the wilderness when you experience that, can you meet the king? Because this king went into the ultimate wilderness and lost God so that you and I can go into our little wilderness and find God. So when you head out into the wilderness, remember, this king knows what you're going through, and he's waiting for your arrival. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. God, our Father, we confess to you that we would rather trust in ourselves than trust in you. We would rather live in our unrighteousness than trust you to drive us into the wilderness in order to make us righteous. Give us a greater desire to proclaim your gospel, to know that it's powerful to change our lives, to know your spirit, to know your presence within and among us, to know your son, to know his perfect righteousness. Forgive us for our lack of faith. Forgive us for being afraid of the wilderness and work in each of us this year as we live with Mark, the protege of the apostle Peter and follower of Jesus. As we hear what he hears, given to him by eyewitnesses of the life of Christ, teach us to respond with greater trust in you and your word and through this gospel to draw us ever closer to your son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. The benediction today comes from next week's passage. It is how we will begin, how we end this week, and how we'll begin next week. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. God bless you. We'll see you this afternoon.